Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, that life is defined, true life, real life, is defined by serving you, the true and living God who dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen and can see. To him be the glory, Paul says in Timothy. Lord, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you found us, that we called upon your name, that you've given us faith, you've given us grace, and you've given us this new life defined in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, now, as we transition into your word, Father, anoint me by your Holy Spirit to preach it, to teach it with clarity of thought in in, in a rational way that people can understand it and get a hold of what your word is saying to us this morning as we study it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Lord, we thank you for this time now. Holy Spirit, take the lead as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You have a seat. Praise the Lord. It's great to be in God's house, even if it's in a plaza, a shopping center. That's all I love about Calvary Chapel. We will we'll turn any place into a church. So we're going through the book of Hebrews. We've been here in the book of Hebrews, I don't know, maybe six months six months or so, and um, we're in Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm, I'm anticipating uh, three to four months just in this one chapter alone because it's so rich and it's so deep. And I felt l- the Lord leading me in my studies throughout the week as we came to Hebrews chapter 11. I don't know if you've counted them, but there's 18 Old Testament saints in the book of Hebrews, and there's a reason God put them in Hebrews chapter 11. And the reason he did is so that you and I, living under the new covenant, living in the, uh, the dispensation of grace, living in this era, could learn from these uh, awesome men and women of faith. So um, I have it up on the screen. You don't have to turn there because we're going to spend the majority of our morning in Genesis. But um, up on the screen is our one verse from Hebrews chapter 11 that we're queuing off of. And that's Hebrews 11:7. So we're hitting one verse in Hebrews this morning. Hebrews 11 says, "By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith." Now, Unless you just haven't been around church for a long time, or maybe you're living under a rock. Um, most of us have heard of Noah, okay? Most of, yeah, exactly, Noah. Most of, heard of, of us have heard of Noah. And did you know, how many chapters are dedicated to Noah in the book of Genesis? Five. And, and six, if you include the, uh, the record of his sons after, after the flood. But who was Noah? Noah was a man of faith. Noah uh, was a man that God raised up for one of the greatest cataclysmic events in world history, the flood. You know, we see the beautiful pictures and the the cutesy pictures of Noah's ark and art and and, in children's ministry. And we get this little rosy feeling, this little warm fuzzy. We see the giraffe sticking his head out the window and the elephant and all that. 
and, and we get this warm feeling like it was this really great event. And it, it was a cataclysmic event. It was a great event, but the thing we need to remember, it was a, it was a, a, a judgment. It was a judgment on the ungodly world. And God chose this one man by the name of Noah to be the man on a mission from the Lord. His name, um, his name means God will give us rest. That's what his name means. But when you think about a man on a mission, you don't think about a man uh, resting. But, but what, it, what it symbolizes in his name is that the ark would give the people of God rest. See, the ark is a, is a picture of salvation. It's, a, it's an Old Testament picture of, uh, of salvation. So what I want to do is um, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 if you're not already there. And like I said, we go verse by verse through the Bible. This morning, I can't go verse by verse through six chapters of Genesis and give it uh, due diligence and due attention. So what I did is I, I, want, I went through Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and I've grabbed snapshots. And I want to give you the complete picture, Noah, but they can be summarized in these three principles that I'm going to be preaching from this morning. First, the world condition. What was the world like in the time of Noah? Secondly, the monumental task that, that Noah was given. Can you imagine if God came to you and said, hey, I want you to build a boat. I want, to build, I want you to build a barge 510 feet long. I'd be like, um, honey, uh, it's time to go to Lowe's. You know, that would be huge. And then we're going to look at the salvation, the salvation aspect that God brought them through. So let's look first at the world condition of what the world was like in the day of Noah. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Skip down to verse 11. We're looking at the world condition. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. The earth was filled with violence. It was a very dark time. Um, Usher, who's a, a, an ancient historian, estimates that this is around 1,500 years after creation. And we, the, he estimates between 700 and 750 million people were possibly on the earth at this time. But the Word of God tells us that in this day and age, that it was a very dark time. The world was filled with corruption, man was wicked, and the hearts were filled with evil. And when the scripture says that the wickedness of man was great, it means that. It simply means that the wickedness of man was great. It was lawless. It was, it was a very corrupt time. And I'm sorry, if, if it maybe has come to your mind at this very moment, it came to my thoughts as I was studying it this week, I couldn't help but to think of the lawlessness that's abounding in our land today and, and, and the corruption uh, in, in every area of our life. It, it just seems like it's collapsing. Why is that? Why do we see the evil in the world? Why do we see the, the darkness? Why do we see such bad things happening in our world today. 
one of the greatest fallacies of mankind. I'm here to announce to you this morning, one of the greatest fallacies is that we are morally good people. That's one of the greatest fallacies. It's one of the greatest fallacies. The truth be told that the whole world, you and I, the mailman, the milkman, the grocery store clerk, and everyone, we are corrupt. We are corrupted by sin. We are corrupted by the fall. That's what explains the wickedness and evil acts of men in Noah's day. Well, guess what? They're looking up, they were looking up at the same blue sky that you and I were looking up at. And that same wickedness is in the earth today. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. He describes the world perfectly thousands of years later in the New Testament. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek for God. All have turned aside together and become useless. There is none who, do, who does good. There is not even one, okay? Nobody. And then verse 13, it goes deeper. This, this, is, this is New Testament. Paul's writing to the, to the Christians at Rome. He says in verse 13, their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And what theologians call this is the depravity of man, that we are wretched sinners, that apart from God, apart from Christ, left to our own devices, this is the way we go. This is the way the human heart is. Inside of every human heart, not only is there the capability to do evil, but if we are unguarded and unrestrained, that is the direction that we naturally go in. That's why Paul said in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because we're rebels. The, the world, people, apart from Christ, apart from the Lord, we're rebels, and we are, we are ran, we are dominated by our sinful nature, and we naturally go this course. Are you thankful for the cross? Are you thankful for the gospel? Are you thankful that the Holy Spirit came and knocked on your heart and said, let me come into your life? And when a person opens their heart and they let Christ come into their life, he starts transforming this wicked, evil heart that's bent on doing wrong. And he starts giving us the desire to do what is good. That's why the only solution is Jesus. You know, more than the, the, the number one, the fix for everything is a heart change. Is a heart change that Jesus described in John chapter 3 as being born again. That's what we need. We need the love of God in our hearts and not the hatred of man. We need the love of Christ dwelling inside of us. You know, we, we need to um, be people where our hearts are open to him coming in and working through and spreading the love of Jesus and spreading the grace of God 
and letting truth transform their lives. But back at Genesis chapter 6, uh, in the midst of this, dark, of this darkness, in the midst of what was going on in the world in Noah's day, guess what? There was a man. God looked down upon the earth, and there was a man. There was a man that had a heart towards the Lord. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. In the middle of this darkness, the scripture talks about, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then it says in verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. And then it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. Why? Why was Noah a righteous man? Because he walked with the Lord. Why did he find favor? Why did Noah find favor? Was there something special about Noah? Was he good looking? Was he handsome? Was he appealing to the eye? Probably not. But what, what made him find favor was his faith and his endeavor to walk with God. He cert- and also, when you, look at the, when you read the whole account of Genesis chapter 5, 6, and 7 leading up, you see this. You see that Noah was the only one that served the Lord, him and his family. He served God in a culture where no one else did, where no one else served the Lord, where it wasn't cool, where it wasn't the end thing. It wasn't going with the flow of the culture in his day, but Noah served God. And and not only did he serve God, but he was completely committed to the Lord. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 verse 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. I ask you this morning, are you committed? Are you committed to the Lord? Are you committed to being a man or a woman on mission? Do you have this heart where you have faith and you want to walk with the Lord and you want to be completely committed? That's who God is looking for. That is, who, that is who God is looking for to change the tide in our culture. It's Christians that are completely committed to him and are, and are willing and able vessels. So that was the world condition. It's kind of like it was today. It was dark. It was fallen. But God looked down in the sea of darkness on the earth, and he saw Noah, who had a heart bent toward him. So what does that lead us to? Once we see the world condition, that leads us to the monumental task. The monumental task, I like to call it, or scripture refers to it, the command. Look at Genesis 6.14. Genesis 6.14, we see the monumental command. It says, uh, Genesis 6.14, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark will be 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which the is the breath of life from under heaven everything that is on the earth shall perish 
But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind of the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. Noah, my friend, was God's appointed man for this monumental task. Think about it. Living in that day and age when you hadn't seen rain, you haven't seen floods, God chooses this great man, well, this man that he makes great, to be a game changer for the world. This is huge, what's fixing to happen. It's going to change the world as we see it. Millions of people are going to perish. You know, continents on planet Earth are going to be shifted. The lands and the oceans and everything and all that is that planet Earth was is going to be completely transformed. Can you imagine God coming and tapping on your shoulder and say, hey, I want you to build a flood. I mean, excuse me, I want you to build an ark. And there's going to be this huge flood. I don't know about you, but that would strike fear in my heart. You know, to be given such a monumental task. I remember in 2013, I was leading the uh, phase two U-Turn for Christ Bible studies on, uh, on Tuesday nights. And I remember Pastor Steve Matier came up to me and said, hey, David, I need you to teach on Friday night, you turn for Christ. And fear struck my heart, and I said, what? Oh, my goodness, I don't know. I don't know if I can get in front of all these people and preach and teach. But it was a monumental task. And then Pastor John came to me in, in January of 2014 and says, hey, we want to start a Calvary Chapel in Williston. And the fear that struck my heart, I was like, oh, my goodness, I don't know if I can do this. But God was telling me, in the months after that, through prayer and fellowship and being in the word and, and seeking counsel, that God was equipping me for the mission. But there was some pressure. But there was some pressure. And there's always pressure. There's always pressure in your life when God asks you to do something. And, and you know, and, and when it comes to big things versus small things, I like to say there are no big things as small things. Because in God's kingdom, all things are big. All things are big. And all things are monumental. Whether it's teaching a children's Sunday school and educating and teaching children about Jesus, or whether it's planting a church, or where, whether it's building this massive ark, they're all, they're all monumental. But I can't help but to think of, as I'm, as I'm processing this text and reading through it and, and meditating on it, to imagine the amount of pressure that was on Noah. He didn't have a large church he could go to and say, hey guys, God has called me to build an ark, let's go. You know, it wasn't like me at, at, uh, at, at Dutch Fort Middle School a couple years ago. Hey, guys, God has opened up this shopping center plaza for us, and, and let's go. And for those first couple weeks, man, we had, we had this, this place was just filled up, tearing things apart, getting it ready to, to build a church. Did, Noah didn't have all that. Noah didn't have all that. So how, for the rational mind, maybe even the skeptical mind, how can a simple man build such an enormous barge? How can such a simple 
man like Noah, who, who probably a simple-minded guy like you and I, how could he build such an enormous ark? You don't have to, you don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read them to you. But in Genesis 6.13, you will find the phrase, Then God said to Noah. In chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord said to Noah. Chapter 8, verse 15, God spoke to Noah. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them. Genesis chapter 9, verse 12, it says, God said. Genesis chapter 9, verse 17, God said. Do you see who was behind the ark? This simple man could not have built it. God did. And how does Noah respond? How does Noah respond to these commands? And might, I, and, and might I add, it wasn't a still, quiet voice. It was a command from heaven that God was given to Noah. How does Noah respond? Look at chapter 6, verse 22. I want you to look at these two verses so you can see it for yourself. How does Noah respond to this monumental command? Chapter 6, verse 22 says, this is a beautiful statement. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. And so he did. He followed God's command. He followed the Lord's leading. He let the Holy Spirit lead the way. Now look at um, Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Another little, sounds familiar? Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. How was this monumental ark built? God built it. And Noah was just the vessel. Noah was just the obedient servant that obeyed the Lord, and God built it through him. What an amazing feat. When we surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and we say, Lord, here am I, send me. If you genuinely mean that, and you mean that with all your heart, stand by. Stand by, because he's going to call you to a great and awesome ministry. It could be teaching children. It could be helping in your local school, uh, Bible clubs. It could be helping in the, in the church. But God will use you when you open that door. But here, in the early chapters of Genesis, we have Noah building an ark. And it took him 120 years to build the ark. 120 years from the command to the completion of the ark. This was a monumental act of faith. Noah and his family uh, begins building this ark, this large barge. If you convert the cubits in Genesis to feet, it would come out to the ark was 510 feet long 85 feet wide by 51 feet high. Every tree within five miles of this ark had to be cut down. And the tree huggers in Greenpeace would have been having a fit. They would have had a, a holy anger against Noah as he's cutting down all the trees, clearing all the land, and he's building this barge? What? They had to, they, I'm sure they ridiculed him. They, they mocked him, but he had a mission from God. He had heard the command, and he said, Lord, here am I, send me. I will do what you call me to do. This monumental faith that we're talking about, 
uh, part of this monumental faith is that we tell others. We tell others. The New Testament gives us some insight into the life of Noah. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says, talking about Noah, and he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved, excuse me, God is talking about, and God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah preached, he warned the world of coming judgment, he was a man on a mission, and he was committed. And, might, and may I may add to that, Noah was not ashamed of the gospel. Noah was not ashamed of the message of God. Noah was not ashamed of how great and how magnificent Yahweh God is and was and was going to be in his life. And he knew that there was a coming judgment. And he, he preached to the people to repent, to turn from their sins, to put their trust in Yahweh. He was not ashamed. Paul says in the New Testament, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And as Christians, why are we embarrassed? Why are we embarrassed to talk about Jesus? I think sometimes religion creeps in. Tradition creeps in. And that's religion and tradition, we, you know, can be boring and embarrassing. But when you talk about the gospel and you talk about God's word, man, there's to be nothing to be embarrassed about that. Because it is the life-changing message. It is what brings people hope. It answers all of our questions in life. It answers where we come, where, where do we come from? Why are we here? God created us. What's our purpose on life? To honor God, to glorify God, to live for him. And it tells us the biggest question that you will answer, that you will find in this life. And that is what happens on the other side. And that's very important because when we leave this life, we will be gone for a very long time. Okay? There's nothing more important than our eternal salvation. So we should not be ashamed of the gospel. Noah was not ashamed. We should not be ashamed. You know, when we present what the word of God says and we tell them about the new life and the forgiveness of sin and the, the Holy Spirit, man, it should make people say, oh, I want that. I need that. I need a heart change. You know, get my head and heart and mind out of Instagram and, and Facebook and get my head and heart into the word of God. That's part of the monumental task. That's how God communicates to us. That's how the Holy Spirit speaks to us as we study his word and he brings the, the words on the pages of scripture and he puts them into our heart. He puts them into our life and he transforms us and he changes us. So there was this monumental task that Noah was given God has a monumental task for you in this life. And if you know it, follow it. If you don't know it, ask. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord in your prayer closet. Ask the Lord in your time you spend in the Word. Talk to your pastor. Talk to other spiritual brothers and sisters and say, hey, what do you see in me? What do you see in my life? You know, that's been one of the huge factors and finding my calling in life is, is knowing godly brothers and sisters who speak prophetically by the Spirit um, into my life, and it transforms me, it changes me. It's a combination of that and the Word of God that I find my monumental task in life, that I find what my mission is. I hope you find yours. Thirdly, finally, 
we're going to look at the salvation. Let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 7, verse 13. Genesis chapter 7, verse 13. It says, On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Javeth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all the sorts of birds. <laughs> Excuse me. So they went into the ark. They went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded them, and the Lord closed it behind them. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered and the water prevailed 15 cubits higher than the mountains were covered. All the flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Verse 22, of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. Judgment had come upon the ancient world in the form of a flood. And might I add, uh, according to the word of God, a global flood. It wasn't a local flood. It was a global catastrophic flood that covered every single mountain on the face of planet Earth, from the North Pole to the South Pole, to every single continent. It displaced, it displaced the world. It was, it was uh, what a sight, a, a world filled with water where all sin and wickedness because of their rebellion, had brought the judgment of God. But God makes a way, God's salvation, what we're reading is God's salvation for Noah and his family. The ark is saved from a global flood that covered every mountaintop. It was God's judgment on sin. And notice this, it, when, you, when you read the text and you, you, you see the big picture of what's taking place, only those in the ark were saved. In other words, kind of self-explanatory statement there, but if you entered the ark, you were saved. If you did not enter the ark, the people perished. The people perished. Noah's ark is a picture of our salvation in Christ Jesus. Noah's ark is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a it's not an allegory, it's not a legend, it's a historical fact that this happened just as the scripture says. But at the same time of it being a historical reality, it's a modern day picture 
of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The ark was the only means of salvation in Noah's day. There was no other way to be saved by the coming flood. Jesus said in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you believing in his death on the cross, you trusting in him, you receiving him, that is your ark for today. That is your ark that you get to enter into. When Noah's family entered the ark, they rested in the Father's hands. Remember what I said Noah's name means? This dew will bring us rest. And by them going into the ark, they rested in the mighty hand of the Lord God Almighty. They rested safely in his hand. When you and I enter our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we get to enter into that same rest that they experienced there at the flood. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But here's the deal for the world. Here's the deal. Here, here's the proclamation that God makes to the world. God has provided an ark, but you must enter. You must enter. And just because there's an ark doesn't mean you will be saved. You've got to enter into the ark. God has made this He's given us the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's given us Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And people, just as those uh, that were saved back in that day, you and I must enter into that ark of having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And may I might add also that the text that we just read a while ago, it says this. It says, after they entered in, who closed the door? God. God closed the door. One day... God will close the door at his return. At his return, one day that door will be closed and this world will go into literal hell, a great tribulation and the Antichrist. And I would hate to be on this earth at that point. How can we avoid that judgment? How can we avoid that great tribulation? By entering into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not getting religious not becoming a church member, but saying, Lord Jesus, please come into my life. I need you. I repent. I turn from my sin. I turn from my wicked ways. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Please come into my life. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and guess what you got? You're in the ark. You're in the ark, and you're safe in the mighty hand of the Father, just like they were back then. But we got to enter in. we got to enter in before that door gets shut. Before that door gets shut. If you move into Genesis chapter 8, the story of salvation, the story of their deliverance, the flood subsides, the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat. Noah sends out the, um, the raven and the three doves. God, uh, and one comes back with an olive leaf. He says, ah, oh, there's land. Cool, we're going to settle down, you know. The flood is subsiding. And then God makes the promise 
that the, the, the world will never be flooded again by what? The rainbow. The rainbow. When you see that rainbow, when you're going down I-26 or I-20 and a little rainstorm has passed through and it's all hot and muggy and you see that little rainbow in the sky, that is God's covenant with the earth that says, I will not destroy this world again by a flood. Okay? The next one's going to be about fire. <laughs> but he won't do it by water again. He, he, won't, he will not do it by water. So God delivers. God delivers Noah and his family and takes them safely to the other side. What a mighty man of God. I mean, I, the text doesn't say this, but it's just my thinking. Noah comes out of the ark. He's like, yeah. How about me? He doesn't do that. He doesn't stay that. He, he stays a humble man. Matter of fact, the first thing he does after he gets off the ark is he, he doesn't pump his chest. The Bible says he builds an altar and he worships. He worships the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. After this great and majestic and glorious deliverance, Noah builds an ark and he worships the Lord. When Christ returns and you and I get taken to heaven, it's going to be a church service like you ain't never seen before. We are going to be rocking the house. We are going to be in a state of worship and praising the lamb who is on the throne and who reigns. Now, I say all that, I kind of just maybe a little bit sort of just kind of puffed Noah up. And you could think, wow, man, Noah, this guy's awesome, dude. Noah was not perfect, okay? And I, I want to I show that to you. Matter of fact, look at Genesis chapter 9. We're going to close with this before I give you what the things that we can learn from Noah. But I, I would be remiss. I would be remiss and wrong if I explained to you the account of Noah's ark and how this monumental, this, this man of God did a monumental thing for the Lord and I didn't show you his failure. Okay, newsflash if you haven't heard it already. Believers are not perfect. Okay? Believers not perfect. You're not perfect and I'm not perfect. And Billy Graham's not perfect. And whoever your favorite preacher is, he is not perfect. And sometimes in life, believers blow it. Let's look at it. Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 24. It says, this is Noah's sin. Verse 20. Then Noah began farming and planting a vineyard. And I can't help but to think, knowing the previous text, he probably got a little relaxed. He probably got a little relaxed. You know, we're on the other side. Life is well. And he's building his family. And maybe, 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 maybe not. He forgot about the Lord. You know, sometimes when we get relaxed in life and when things are going really well, sometimes we, we forget about spiritual things and how important they are. Maybe that's what happened to Noah. Maybe, maybe not. But in verse 21, it says, Noah, he drank of the wine and became drunk. And he uncovered himself inside his, his tent. Ham, the father of Cain, this is his three sons. Ham, the father of the Canaan, of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Jabeth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and walked backwards 
and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest sons had done to him. Wow. To think that this man of God, this servant, could have built that ark, could have witnessed this global flood, could have, God spoke, the scripture says it, I pointed out this verse to you all ago. God spoke directly to Noah. To think that all that supernatural things could happen, and then he falls, to some minds, may be unthinkable. Until you go back to the first point in my sermon, which is, for all have sinned, and all have fallen short of God's glory. All have blown it. You're looking at the chief of sinners right now. You're, you're looking at one who's broken them millions of times and, and, and has blown it. Drunkenness, a picture of some immorality, some exposure of nudity. You know, this, 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 would, this would land someone in jail today. This would uh, encourage the condemnations from all corners. And I'm not trying to justify it. I mean, what happened was wrong. What happened was wrong, and, and, and he sinned against God. But my point in bringing out Noah's sin is, is to say this. Noah was not a perfect man, and neither are you, and neither am I. And neither is anyone, you know. The, this, this passage of Noah's sin, it teaches us that believers are not beyond temptation. Believers are not beyond temptation. And you, my friend, as a believer, need to protect your heart. Protect your heart. Guard your heart. And do those things necessary to guard your heart and shield yourself from sin and temptation. And one of those ways that you guard your heart and your mind is what you're doing right now, is getting into the word and coming to church. You know, believers are not beyond temptation. And, and, and your leaders are not either. Pastors are not beyond temptation. Pastors are not beyond falling. That's why the scripture commands us in the New Testament to fervently pray for our leaders. And I ask you to pray that for me. Fervently pray for me that, that, that I live a life above reproach, that people will listen and accept and receive the Bible teaching at Calvary Chapel Irmo because, you know, the pastor lives above reproach. And I, I do my very best to, in, to endeavor to study the word and teach the word. But I know and I understand foremost that with that responsibility of teaching the word, people will look at my life. People will look at my life and look at how does he parent? How does he love his wife? How does he take care of his family? Does he pay his bills? Is he living a life above reproach? And those, those, those are requirements of a leader. According, you know, there's three letters in the New Testament we call the pastoral epistles. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. And in those uh, pastoral epistles, they lay out the qualifications for a leader. 
And a, a leader needs to do his very best to obey the Lord and live a life above reproach so that we can preach the word and we can teach. And then people will entrust us with our, our spiritual leadership. It's very important. But, again, maybe you've known a pastor or a leader or somebody that was a spiritual leader in your life that's fallen. You know, how should you treat them? You should treat them the same way God has treated you. You should treat them the same way God has treated you. You know, it, the, the scripture does command them to repent, to show fruits of repentance, to, to, to step down for a season maybe, show the fruit of repentance, show that they've turned away from it. But we should, but with that, in, in that and all that together, you and I show them grace. We show them grace. Because you and I are one situation, or, or, or we're, we're one action away from being tempted or, or being tempted to fall away. So we need to guard our hearts and encourage each other with grace so that we don't make the same mistake that, that Noah did. So I want to close this morning. Four things, four things that you can take, that you can take home this morning. Four things that we can learn from the life of Noah in our exposition of Hebrews chapter 11, but we're looking at verse 7 this morning that refers to Noah. The first thing that you can learn about, that you can take home from Noah is this. You can faithfully serve God when no one else does. And Noah has given us an example of that. When we live in a culture that's not serving God, that's lukewarm, that has no passion for God, guess what? You can. You can. You can be on fire for God. All it takes is one heart. One heart completely committed to him. I think it was 2 Chronicles 16, 9, I quoted a while ago. It says his eyes go to and fro throughout the earth, seeking those whose hearts are completely committed to him. You can do it. You can do it. And we here at Calvary Chapel Irma are here to help you, to help you get on fire for God. I think uh, it was Charles Spurgeon and John Wesley. It was one of them. I can't remember which one says it. Matter of fact, I've heard different preachers say different people said it. But he says, uh, get on fire for the Lord and the world will come to watch you burn. Let that be said of us. Let, pe let, let people be said, man, let's go to Calvary Chapel and see some people on fire for the Lord. You can do it. Don't keep, don't, don't. Close down Facebook, close down Instagram. Stop watching the news and, and replace that time with the word of God and see what he does. And see if he doesn't light a passion in your heart. And, and, and don't lose your joy, you know, in the midst of what's going on. But you can faithfully serve God when Noah does. The second thing that we learn from Noah is this. When God calls you to a mission, he will guide and he will provide. Our little banner over here is one of the Calvary Chapel sayings. Philippians 4:19 over there next to Rick's owner says, "Where God guides, God provides. When God opens up the door, ain't nobody going to close it. He's going to provide. 
It's the same way with Noah. Those people couldn't have stopped Noah if they wanted to. God would have pushed them back. And where God guides, God provides. So when he called, when you seek the Lord and he places that ministry on your heart, that plan, that person to reach out to, or, or maybe that prayer ministry at your work, he will provide. He will open up the doors. The third thing that you and I can learn from the life of Noah is this. God calls every believer to build an ark. Every believer to build an ark. Honey, we're going to Home Depot after this. We're going to go to Lowe's. We're going to go to uh, 84 Lumber. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do none of that. How are we going to build our, build our ark? The Ford family is going to build our ark. We're going to build it on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We're going to build our life, build our marriage, encourage our children to love Jesus more than anything, to trust him with all their heart, for us to trust him with all our heart. We're going to build our life not on the, the wood of Noah's ark that people, scientists say is on top of Mount Ararat. You know, it, 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 did you know that um, something happened and it got removed from Mount Ararat? Did you know that? It got moved to Kentucky. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Who's been to Noah's Ark in Kentucky? A couple of people. I can't wait to go. I've been to the Creation Museum. Ken Ham. By, by the way, I fully wholeheartedly endorse Ken Ham Answers in Genesis Ministry. Love those guys. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. There's this, they call it the anomaly. The anomaly of Mount Ararat. But scientists have seen pictures of this structure at the top of Mount Ararat, uh, encased in ice. Okay, I'm cool with that. But uh, Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis, there in northern Kentucky, they have built an ark to the same size as what the scripture says. Look forward to going there one day and checking it out. But the ark that you and I get to build is our relationship with Christ Jesus and trusting him and loving him, and he calls us to build that ark. And the final thing that we learn that we can take home from today's gathering and learning about Noah is this. No believer is perfect. Therefore, let us show grace to each other. Okay? Guess what? You're not perfect. Guess what? Pastor Dave is not perfect. Therefore, let us show grace to each other. Let us encourage each other let us propel each other forward. And as Noah's name represents, Noah's name means uh, entering God's rest. Let's enter that same rest of living for the Lord and serving him. And again, this all begins with a person coming to a place of repentance and faith. Remember what I said, salvation is like a coin. Repentance on one side, faith on the other. Repentance is saying, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I've rebelled against you. Please forgive me. And then the other side of that coin is, Jesus, I trust you. Please come into my life. And when you do that, you can begin the journey like these great men of faith, like Noah. And God will give you a monumental task. He will help you when you receive Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Back up one before that, we we're talking about the ungodly world. He'll give you a biblical worldview. I see each and every one of you guys as created in the image of God. 
You are image bearers of the Most High God. He created you, male and female. But sin came in through Adam and Eve and knuckleheads, and they disobeyed the Lord, and it brought the fall. So I understand you as people that have been created in the image of God that Jesus loves and that you have purpose, you have plan, God has a plan for your life, but it starts with receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you have not done that, just want to encourage you, do it today. Do it today. Do it today before that ark door gets shut. Put your trust in Christ. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. Ask him to come into your life. And if you haven't done that, please come up to me after service, and we'll be glad to pray with you to begin this new journey um, of serving the Lord and walking with Christ. Amen? Amen. Guys, I hope y'all have been blessed by this teaching from uh, Noah. I think uh, I began the beginning of the week like, oh my goodness, I got five chapters. What am I going to do with this? Oh my goodness. Because I, like I like just a couple Bible verses. I like three or four Bible verses, and let's dive into them. But a beautiful, beautiful passage on Noah and if you want to get the whole big picture bigger than what I shared this morning, go back and read um, Genesis chapter uh, 5 through Genesis chapter 10 and read about the whole entire account of Noah. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, for what you've taught us this morning on the person of Noah and what this guy represented. Father, give us a biblical worldview. Help us to understand why we are seeing the things that we're seeing in our culture, why, why we see the evil, why, why we see these things, because, because this world is marred by sin. And then, Father, I pray for every believer that you'll give us a monumental task, that you'll give us a command, that you'll give us a ministry to help turn the tide of the culture and point people back to not to us, but to your salvation, to your ark, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, plant these words firmly in our heart as we move forward. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, Lord God, amen.